hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm? What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. Overall, women are 40% more likely to experience insomnia than men, but the numbers are even higher midlife, which is not news for millions of perimenopausal and menopausal women. A few months ago, I was at a medical conference and attended a lecture on sleep and menopause. I thought I knew a lot on the topic, but after this lecture, I knew so much more. Today, my guest is the physician who gave that lecture, Dr. Stephanie Fobian. Dr. Fobian is the director for Mayo Clinic Center for Women's Health and the medical director for the North American Menopause Society. She's a researcher, a teacher, a clinician, and an author of both academic articles and consumer articles and books. Welcome, Dr. Fobian. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a delight to be here and to talk about this important topic with women. And thank you for taking the time. You know, obviously, hot flashes are the number one thing that prevent women from getting a decent night's sleep. And, and like you, I'm always emphasizing that there are many safe and effective hormonal and non-hormonal options to decrease or eliminate those flashes. So what I'd like to focus on today are those medical conditions that get in the way of sleep other than hot flashes. So could you start by just first talking about the difference between the woman who's not able to fall asleep versus the woman who falls asleep just fine. And then she wakes up during the night. Oh, you know, well, there are so many common complaints around this time frame. So there are the women that, yeah, are so exhausted, but just can't go to sleep when they get into bed. And it can be everything from your mind just won't get off the list that you have for the next day and really struggle getting to sleep. And then there are those who are like out like a light. um, But clockwork one o'clock in the morning and it could be a hot flash or it could be just your your brain spinning or it could be that you have to get up to go to the bathroom there's so many reasons why you might wake up um, but can't get back to sleep and it's it staring at the clock it's watching the minutes go by it's wondering if you should get up and just start working or do the laundry and it's five o'clock and you still haven't gotten back to sleep or play words with friends with all the other menopausal women who can't sleep exactly <laughs> i'm always surprised when i'm up at you know two in the morning and i play words with friends and immediately people start playing me back and i'm thinking oh my god i am not the only one talk about the difference between restorative sleep as opposed to non-restorative sleep Well, I think any woman could probably tell you when she gets it and when she doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, when I ask my patients about this, I say, they say, I I get about eight hours sleep a night. And I say, great. Um, When you wake up in the morning, do you feel like you've slept or do you feel like you've done battle all night long? And so if those women are in bed for seven or eight hours and they wake up feeling completely drained and like they haven't even been to bed yet, that's non-restorative sleep. If they, if they do feel good, and some women can get less sleep than that seven or eight hours and still feel like they wake up and they've had a good night's sleep. So I think most women know it when they see it, um, but that's when you feel like you've had a good night's sleep. And how about the difference between REM sleep and, and non-REM sleep? You know, when we talk about interrupted sleep, you know, because we talk about seven, eight hours, there are seven, eight hours in total versus seven or eight hours straight through. Does that matter? Uh 
the the fragmented sleep, and I think we heard about this in another great recent lecture, mm-hmm. is um, waking after s- sleep onset or WASO is not a good thing. And so for those people that are having that fragmented sleep and they're not really getting into the deep restorative phases, that's not a good thing. And it's actually associated with bad health outcomes. So if this, yeah, that's the next thing I want to talk about is, is when we think in terms of not getting enough sleep, aside from feeling miserable and tired and making bad food choices and not exercising and all that. I mean, there are some very specific health repercussions of not getting sleep, correct? Absolutely. Um, You know, there's a greater risk of heart disease. There's a greater risk of diabetes. There's a greater risk of being obese. There's a greater risk of dementia. And there's a greater risk of dying if we're not getting enough sleep. So it's not like this is a minor thing. Um, Getting enough sleep is actually critically important. Yeah, it's a major thing. And it's one of the things that, you know, of course, we both talk about with hot flashes and people are like, oh, I'm just going to tough it out. And no, you know, these hot flashes go on for years, seven to 10 years average or more. And that's one of the reasons why women have all these health problems. So be- before we get into some of the specific medical conditions that could impact on sleep, you, you mentioned the impact of stress and just life getting in the way of, um, of being able to fall asleep or, or waking up in the middle of the night. So could you speak to that a little bit about the impact of, of the kinds of stressful things in life events that happen at the same time when women are going through perimenopause and menopause? I I think we forget that you can't separate the woman from her phase of life. And so this is also the the time when you may have kids that you're worried about coming home at night, um, or you may actually have younger kids because you had concerns with fertility and you end up at at 45 or 50 with a five-year-old in your house, which can sometimes happen. So um, you also may have a partner who's not sleeping well, who may have an entry. The snore in the bed, right? next to The the snore in the bed or the dog in the bed or the geriatric dog in the bed who needs to go out to go to the bathroom. So there's so many things that are going on with women and it's not just their own sleep issues. And not to mention that that when you talk about geriatrics, for a lot of women who are in their mid 40s, early 50s, they are also dealing with with aging parents, Um, you know, sometimes a dissolution of a relationship or a marriage. It's it's a tough time of life to have your hormones take a dive and not being able to sleep. It's a time of transition anyway, and not just in the hormonal way, but it's a time of transition. And a, a lot of women, you know, this is like you said, the time when children are leaving the house. And this is the time when you're taking a second look at the marriage and marriages, if they're going to dissolve, that's a time of risk right yeah. then too. So, And this is also a time when women turn to that bottle of wine mm-hmm. <laughs> with dinner and maybe to help them get to sleep. What, what role does alcohol play in, in the ability to get a decent night's sleep? Well, you think it's going to help, but in reality, it might do the opposite. So uh, I think a lot of women just get into the habit of coming home from work and going, I need a glass of wine just to relax and come down from the day. And, you know, it's nice and it does help you get to sleep a little faster, but the way we metabolize alcohol, it, it, is, um, it, it is disruptive to sleep and we end up having less restorative sleep when we have alcohol on board. Um, It also is a depressant and it's important to remember that. So for women who are already prone to a depressed mood, um, this is probably not your best friend. It may help you get to sleep, but it's not going to help with good quality sleep. And it's really not going to help with mood. Well, not to mention that that one glass of wine very often turns into two glasses of wine or three glasses of wine. Right. 
And uh, and then you and then you're up, waking up in the middle of the night with palpitations and with palpitations all kinds of unpleasant and dehydrated stuff. and you know and and we see a lot of the same kinds of things with with cannabis which we're not going to get into today but I do have another podcast on cannabis and I talk about the impact of cannabis and menopausal women um, that it's not always a positive thing it might get you to sleep and then you wake up in the middle of the night with cotton yeah. mouth and feeling kind of disoriented so these are all things that might seem like they're helpful but they're really not. Let's talk about some of the medical conditions that um, that impact on sleep, because, you know, so often women just think it's their hot flashes. And then when they come in and we say, OK, let's deal with the hot flashes and, and we give them something and then they're still not sleeping and it never occurs to them that that something else could be the problem. So let's start with talking about a condition called obstructive sleep apnea. What is it? You know, that is where um women or men uh, may stop breathing in the middle of the night. And, and sometimes that this is scary. It, it, it is scary. And if you've ever watched your partner do that, it is kind of scary because you're sitting there going, are you going to take another breath anytime soon? Yeah. And then they go, watching. And you're like, oh, wow, that's kind of scary. And if you think about it, and I explain this to women, your body thinks it's having death and dying spells all night long. So imagine the fire alarm going off in your body when your brain is going, no oxygen here, we're dying. And it shoots off the alarm signals. And so your stress hormones go up, your cortisol goes up, your adrenaline goes up. And all of a sudden you take that big gasp and your heart rate is racing. And that is like not a good, healthy environment. And this could happen multiple times an hour all night long. And so you can imagine you're never getting into those deep restorative phases of sleep and you're being jolted out by the equivalent of a fire alarm like every several minutes. So when we think of the classic symptoms of sleep apnea, we think of, you know, the heavy person who's snoring and those breathing pauses you just talked about and then being tired in the day. But women evidently don't necessarily have those symptoms. And this was actually the number one thing that I took away from your lecture. So talk about some of these atypical symptoms that women might have. Yeah, it's so interesting. And after practicing in our menopause clinic for a long time, I mean, the warning bells in my mind when I hear is insomnia is a big one. I, I'm not sleeping well because women, especially those who are not sleeping with a partner, will not be able to tell you that they're snoring at night. Um, just daytime fatigue is a good one, but morning headaches are a big one. So if they are waking up with morning headaches every morning and they don't feel good and they haven't slept well, it's like, got to screen somebody for sleep apnea if that's happening. It also could be complaints of memory loss or poor concentration or just irritability. So there's there are other symptoms that can go along with um, that atypical presentation in women. You know, that actually changed the way I practice, because now when a woman tells me that she's tired, my next question is, do you have a morning headache? And I cannot tell you how many women have said, yeah, funny that you ask. I never used to be a headache person, and now I'm having morning headaches. And I think a lot of people chalk up this, you know, memory loss and poor concentration is, oh, this just happens in menopause and oh, well, right. as opposed to it being a real indication that they have sleep apnea or something else going on. Um, so what are risk factors when we talk about sleep apnea, other than being a human being, you know, who's midlife and perhaps someone who's um, overweight, because you always think of that as a, as a risk factor. Are there other risk factors uh, for sleep apnea? 
Yeah. So weight is a big one. And especially because we tend to gain weight in midlife and that's for men and for women, but that's, that's part of it. Menopause is also a risk factor because the loss of estrogen means that we lose a little bit of tone in our airways too. So it makes them a little floppier. And so the combination of excess weight around the neck area and a floppier airway are both risk factors. Pregnancy is also a risk factor. So that's not necessarily in midlife women, but, um, but that's a female specific risk factor and just getting older is a risk factor. Yeah. And I think also it's so important to, to keep in mind that you can be someone who's thin and who doesn't mm-hmm. snore and you can still have sleep apnea. So how is it diagnosed? If someone is listening who thinks, hmm, maybe I do have sleep apnea, what's their next step? So what I typically order for my patients is an overnight oximetry study, and that's an easy just uh, oxygen monitor on your finger. Actually, a lot of people know about those now because of COVID. Um, so a lot of people have have oxygen monitors, but even just checking that overnight to see if someone is having big dips in their oxygen level overnight would prompt us to go ahead and test. Um, but there are also some home sleep apnea tests that are available now that are that are um, that your provider can order that make it to where you don't necessarily have to go into a sleep lab to have a formal test to be diagnosed. Yeah, and I think when we talk about a sleep lab, while major uh, medical institutions and hospitals do generally have sleep centers and sleep specialists and sleep labs, it's not always available to people who are in smaller towns. So it's it's interesting that there are home tests that are valuable for, for screening. Once someone um, is diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea, can you just kind of give an overview, a general overview of the kinds of treatments that they might be offered? Well, the, the, the gold standard of treatment is called CPAP, um, and that's where we use a, a continuous positive airway pressure to keep the airways open so they don't collapse. Um, you've probably seen people with pictures of big masks on or, um, or big, loud, noisy machines. They've gotten these machines to where the masks are much smaller and the machines are less noisy. And I will tell you that if you really have sleep apnea, CPAP can be a game changer, a hundred percent game changer. I have some patients who have come back and said, you know, not like it's literally life-changing and they won't even consider traveling without it. And they have actual travel devices where you can, you can have smaller versions that you take with you when you travel. There's also some behavioral things. So if it's a mild issue, not quite to the point where you need a CPAP machine, there are some positional therapies is one. So some people just really have this issue when they're sleeping on their back and a, and a quick and dirty way of keeping people off their back, including your partner who snores, um, take a tennis ball, sew it into a t-shirt in the back and they will stay off their back. Every time they roll over, it's going to tell them to get off their back. So t-shirt and a tennis ball technique is a really uh, quick and dirty way of getting people to stay off their backs. Also watching out for alcohol, as we just talked about, because some people who are a little on the borderline are going to go ahead and have an issue when they have um, a sleeping pill or a glass of wine, et cetera. Also stopping smoking is really important um, because that can make some symptoms worse. There's also your dentist um, can help you with an oral appliance to help keep your tongue forward. And there's now a new nerve stimulator um, that, that sounds kind of scary, but what it does is it stimulates the glossal nerve to protrude the tongue. So 
your tongue actually moves forward in your mouth to keep it out of the way of your airway. So there are some different therapies out there, but by far and away, the gold standard for sleep apnea is CPAP therapy. And, and as you said, I cannot tell you how many patients are like, really, you really want me to sleep with this machine? And then they come back and say, oh, my God, game changer. I, I am awake during the day. I'm exercising. Yeah. I'm losing weight. I can think. Well, that's an important point that you just bring up because I do tell women this, if they're hesitant to do this, I'm like, you will not be able to lose weight until you get this taken care of. Because if you think about it, you're not sleeping well, you are going to try everything to try to keep yourself awake during the day. And usually that's carb loading. And you don't feel like exercising because you're so tired because you haven't slept. So you will not be able to effectively lose weight until you address this issue. Exactly. And um, in my podcast on weight loss, and when I I give my my 12 tips to losing weight and I think number one, two, and three, and four are get a decent night's sleep because sleep has such an, an enormous impact on the ability to not only get the weight off, but but to keep it off. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about another pretty common medical condition, restless leg syndrome. A lot of people have heard of sleep apnea, but a lot of people are not familiar with restless leg syndrome. So So what is it? Yeah. If you have it, you will know you have it. And even from the description, people are going, oh, yeah, I think I might have that. It's an uncontrollable urge to move your legs. Um, and it can sometimes be associated with a kind of pins and needles sensation or an electrical sensation. Um, but it's just a feeling of if you've ever been on an airplane and, and you just feel like you've can't get comfortable and you've got to move your legs, that, that is restless leg syndrome. Um, the predominant symptoms are mostly in the evening hours and at night um, and, and when you're sitting or lying down. So it's less of a problem when you're up and walking around or exercising. It tends to get better when you're moving around, um, when you're stretching or walking. Is there any pain or it's just you can't stop? moving your legs. It's just really uncomfortable. And speaking as someone who has restless legs, it's not painful, but it's supremely uncomfortable. Yeah. And is this something that is typically a midlife issue or is this something that can happen anytime? Uh, it can happen anytime. In fact, it's it's largely hereditary. And two of my three daughters have it and they are in their 20s and they already know they have it. Um, so I, it can happen at any time. I developed it when I was in college, um, but it gets more, it's more common as you get older, for sure. All right. So we're looking at genetics and age. Are there any other risk factors? Um, being low on iron is a risk factor. So women who menstruate and are low on their iron stores can can definitely make it worse. Pregnancy is uh, tends to make it worse. Antidepressants um, may make it worse as well. And there are some medical conditions like neuropathy and kidney disease that can make it worse. Yeah. Also, imagine ca- anything that makes you anemic. I mean, if someone sometimes someone has yeah. gastrointestinal blood loss, for example, that makes them anemic. And it sounds like that would be another situation with low iron. Uh, absolutely. And my, my daughter who has restless legs has been donating blood and she goes, my restless legs is getting worse. I'm like, oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. So that so, would be another, another risk factor is donating too much blood and then you start right? to get restless legs. Exactly. It's so, important so how do you treat this other than, you know, taking iron and making sure that you're not anemic? Um, and what, what else can you do? Well, avoid triggers. So some of those triggers are caffeine and alcohol. So caffeine can definitely make these symptoms worse and alcohol can too. So I know that we've been really down on alcohol and it's not that you can't have an occasional glass of wine, but it will, it will make these symptoms worse. Um, there are also medications associated with, uh, with 
the treatment of this disorder. And um, there's a there's a number of them, um, but some of them are um, what we call gabapentin. Uh, those are alpha two delta ligands, big fancy name. Uh, dopamine agonists are another class of medication. Uh, dopamine precursors, and then there's some other ones. So even just taking a sleeping pill um, will sometimes help restless leg syndrome. And sometimes women need to actually rotate these medications because they become tolerant to some of them. So some women need to go on sort of a rotational schedule, but uh, almost always we can find a medication that helps. Let's talk about sleeping pills in women because we know that like a lot of medications, women respond differently than men. Um, and I think when you look at a lot of the popular prescription sleeping medications, that's the case. So could you talk a little bit about that? You know, that is such an important point and one that hasn't been fully addressed yet. And uh, many of your listeners may know that Ambien is the first drug that has ever received a recommendation for a differential dosing pattern in women versus men. And that's because they ultimately found out that women don't metabolize Ambien the same way that men do. And their Stopping. blood levels, <laughs> they, they, their blood levels end up being way, way higher yeah. than men's do with the same dose. And so when you look back and you go, well, what else could be this way? Pretty much everything could be this way. So we just don't have these drugs mostly have not been tested in women. And that's the issue that we have with them. So while a sleeping pill is okay and for short term, and it's okay to get you through situational things like you just experienced a death in the family or something where you really need some more immediate but short-term help, that can be a good solution short-term. But sleeping pills long-term are probably not the solution. So when I have patients in my office, I'm like, you know, what, what are we trying to fix here? What, is, what are the issues that are getting in the way of a good night's sleep? And how can we do a better job of helping you with that without a long-term sleeping medication? But, but what is the problem? Let's just say someone finds that Ambien works great for them. They only need a teeny little bit, 2.5 milligrams, maybe, you know, maybe five what's the harm in doing this over a long period of time? As long well, as they're not continuing to need more, a teeny little dose does it for them. What's the harm? Yeah, I, I think you're, you, you could be right that teeny little dose over time is probably not a huge deal. I think we get concerned when as women and men age, our body composition changes, we lose muscle mass. So we proportionally have less muscle mass. We may be metabolizing the drug differently as we get older. And it could predispose us to falls, for example, in the mornings. And, and if you wake up kind of feeling groggy still and you're falling and you get a hip fracture, that's a major issue as an right. older person. So I think that's the concern longer yeah. term. How about some of the over-the-counter options? You know, certainly we see a lot of advertisements for you know, Advil PM and, you know, basically different Benadryl over-the-counter Benadryl preparations. What are your thoughts on that? You know, good question. Um, I, I cringe a little bit when people are taking it with a pain reliever at the same time, like um, an acetaminophen or Tylenol or an ibuprofen or, you know, Motrin or yeah. uh, PM drug, because they often don't need the painkiller with it. They often are just trying to sleep. And so again, I, help, I, I encourage people to try to separate out what are we trying to treat? Are you hurting when you're going to bed? In which case, let's manage your hip pain, right? Mm -hmm. Or are you really unable to sleep? In which case, maybe you just need the, the sleep aid. Now, when you get back to the uh, the antihistamines as sleep aids, um, they, they've got side effects too. And it's important to remember that they're very drying. They can make it difficult for some people to urinate. Um, and that's important to note. Uh, 
Um, because they're so drying, they can increase your risk of cavities because your mouth is drying out at night and you may be breathing through your mouth more than you were before. And, and again, it may not be a great long-term solution because they make people, uh, a lot of people groggy in the morning. So short-term, yeah. yes. Long-term may not be great. And, and what does the data say about melatonin these days? I keep hearing different things. I, I hear different things too. Mm-hmm. And I read different things yeah. and I see, I see some, you know, it's probably not harmful. Um, I think whether, whether or not it's really truly effective is still somewhat debatable. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I don't object to my patients trying it um, because I think it, I think it's fine to try and relatively safe. Um, but, but if it doesn't work for them, I don't think they need to continue taking it long-term. Yeah. I mean, that's my impression is the jury is still really out on if it, it actually works. You mentioned um, not being able to urinate. Let's talk about the opposite problem. The woman who's getting up at night to urinate. And one of the things that's always hard for me to flesh out is, does someone urinate because they're up anyway? So as long as they're up, they're like, okay, I'll go to the bathroom versus the need to urinate waking them up. You know, thank you for that question, because that's another one that I screen women for sleep apnea for is if they're getting up several times in the night to urinate, I will go ahead and screen them because often they just are awake and they get up to go to the bathroom because they're just awake. So, but I think, I think that's important to sort out. Some people are going to the bathroom at night because they have what we call genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And that can sort of cause these overactive bladder symptoms to where people are feeling like they have more urgency and more frequency, and they've just got to go more often. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be treated. That's easily treated with um, some topical hormonal therapies, very, very effective. Which I think um, now we have just, this is 100% of my podcast that we have now talked about using <laughs> a topical estrogen to get rid of those got to go urinary urgencies. So I think, I, I hope that people you're are batting really 100% message because it's, I think this makes it a hundred percent because, you know, you and I rail about this as everyone else does that these women are suffering and recurrent urinary tract infections and they've got a go feeling and they're getting up at night to pee all the time. And sometimes just putting a little bit of estrogen on the urethra um, will make just all the difference, difference in the world, but yeah. So no, yay. hundred um, <laughs> percent. Let's, let's talk a little bit. Oh, wait, before I go away from the bladder stuff, I mean, you are an internist. I want to point that out. You are an internist, not a gynecologist. So there are um, internal medicine sorts of conditions that cause people to get up in the middle of the night to urinate too, correct? Oh, yes. All kinds of things from spinal cord issues to medications that you might be on that are making this happen to urinary tract infections to the most common one, which we just talked about, which is genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So yes, there can be a number of reasons why, why people are up in the middle of the night, even a head injury can, can make you urinate all the time. So lots of things uh, that we as internists start thinking of, but common things are common, right? That's right. Well, I think what this really emphasizes is the point that we were kind of talking about earlier, that if you're not sleeping, there are a lot of medical issues that are impacting on your ability to sleep. And certainly if you have not had a general checkup with your internist or family doctor, um, that is something that would be really important to do because you may not think that that's what's causing you to not sleep, but very often it is. I want to spend some time talking about sleep hygiene um, because it's a word that gets tossed around a lot. And I think while women 
are certainly aware that they should practice good sleep hygiene. I think there's a lot of confusion about what that really is. So, so what are your tips for increasing the chances of falling asleep and staying asleep? Uh, yeah, I, I, th- I actually think I spend a lot of my day with my patients talking about this kind of stuff because you're right, it does, it's not necessarily intuitive. So, so one of the things is allow yourself some time to kind of wind down before you go to bed. Um, so the substance use we've already talked about. So tobacco use, take caffeine afternoon is probably a no-no. Too much alcohol at night is going to keep you up. Uh, maybe not initially, but certainly in the middle of the night. Bed is for sleep and sex. That's it. Sleep and sex. Just keep that in mind. Bedroom should be cool enough that you're comfortable. And and don't get in bed, turn on the TV and watch a shoot 'em up movie right before you go or dateline, you know, where they're like the murder is happening and you know, you're worried about who did it and there's something horrible that happened. That is not what you want to watch right before you go to bed. Um, so kind of give yourself that time to wind down. Exercise but not right before bedtime. So give yourself at least a couple of hours and don't eat a huge heavy meal and then expect to go to sleep afterwards. You're not going to be able to sleep. Limit taking naps during the day. Um, Do a calming activity, like whether it's meditation or taking a warm bath or having that cup of chamomile tea is a habit for some people. Also, if you're awake in the middle of the night, don't just sit there and watch the clock. So one, you should turn the clock away from you to where you can't actually sit there and watch it. But if you are dead awake, get out of bed, wait until you're tired again, and then get back in bed and then go to sleep. Remember, the bed is for sleep and sex. It is not to sit there and you know battle insomnia all and, night long. And answer your emails. <laughs> we have a, a sleep center here at Northwestern, and there was a study that just came out that looks specifically at ambient light in the room and how important even small amounts of light. I mean, you talk about, obviously your phone shouldn't be on, the clock shouldn't be looking at you, but even a teeny little bit of light from peeking under the door. So I think we should just be handing out sleep masks to all of our patients. And that would probably be better than handing out sleeping pills. Do you agree? I, I think it would be. And then again, don't forget the dog in the bed and uh, and your partner that's snoring and all the other disruptions that are present in the middle of the night. I, I just heard a radio show this morning where they were saying that this couple lived in New York and her daughter, they went traveled somewhere where it was like quiet and the daughter... The daughter couldn't sleep through the night because there weren't sirens and people yelling and she felt it too quiet and it was so disconcerting that she couldn't sleep. Uh, So her normal um, pattern was that she had all this stuff going on around her and that was comforting to her. So I think I think there are some caveats to these rules, but but I think in general, we need a quiet, cool, dark place to sleep. My uh, my daughter just just had a baby and. This baby has been trained to only sleep with white noise. And my daughter insists that, you know, this is this is what you do with babies now. And and the baby does sleep very well. And I know there are some adults that also have that white noise machine. Do you, do you have thoughts on that? I, I guess so. But I always worry. I mean, I was boarded as a pediatrician, too. So I always I worry about what you're teaching your kids to do, because then watch out. If you don't have that white noise machine sometime, you're going to be in trouble. Well, exactly. Exactly. Are there any 
sleep conditions that we've missed that you want to talk about that, that we need to fill in those, those blanks? Well, I think we've talked about obstructive sleep apnea and we've talked about restless legs. We haven't talked about just plain old insomnia, um, but I, I think we've had enough of a general conversation around that. But just kind of reemphasizing that women in midlife can just wake up in the middle of the night and not be able to go back to sleep. And it's not related to hot flashes or night sweats, and it's not related to anything else. And sometimes that's just the menopause transition. And people ask what that is. And I really think it's a, it, it's a direct impact of your hormone levels falling. And, and if you think about it, if you're withdrawing from a drug, you're not going to sleep well. So this is essentially withdrawing from steroids. Yeah. It's withdrawing from estrogen and that can cause insomnia in and of itself. So outside of hot flashes and night sweats. And, and I did, there, there's not a lot of data on whether this is at its worst at the beginning of menopause or in the middle or the end, but there is some data that does suggest that perimenopause is the, 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 the highest risk time for having insomnia. And that makes sense because that's when your hormones are fluctuating. So you're withdrawing all the time. It's not just one withdrawal. It's, you know, your hormones are up and then they're down and then they're up and then they're down. And it's really hard to get into a good sleep cycle. That's absolutely right. And, and that plays out with what I see in my clinic and I'm sure it does with yours too, but you just find that women just can't, they can't put their finger on it, but they just can't get a good night's sleep. Yeah. You know, one of the many hats that you wear is you are the medical director of the North American Menopause Society. And that's something that I mention a lot, particularly for women to find a physician or an advanced practice clinician who can help them. But I've never really fully explained what the North American Menopause Society is. And since I have you, why don't you take a couple minutes to tell everybody what, what kind of work is done and, and why this is such an important organization? Oh, thank you for that. So, um, as you're aware, we are a large organization, and uh, the North American Menopause Society is the largest uh, organization in North America that focuses on the health of midlife women. Um, and we're committed to bettering the health of midlife women in many ways. And part of uh, one of our primary goals is really educating medical providers on how they can best do that. And so we train, we certify menopause practitioners so that we, we know they have a, a certain level of knowledge about how to manage women in menopause. So it's an NCMP certification. And if you go on the menopause.org website, you can actually find a provider in your local area area that has that certification that you know has gone through some additional training that has to do with menopause. Uh, so I think that's one of the most important functions of our organization. Um, we also work very hard to forward the science and the research uh, around the menopause uh, transition and, and helping keep midlife women healthy beyond that time frame. Uh, so, so, keeping women healthy as they age. Mm -hmm. um, but we support education and research and, and those clinicians in practice who do this every day. You know, one of the things that I hear so often is, how come there's no research about this? How come nobody knows about this? And the truth is, is there's a great deal of research and many 
clinicians do know about this, but we know too many do not. And so that's why the North American Menopause Society is so important because for women who are frustrated, who feel like their own doctor isn't helping them, this is an incredible resource to find someone who is certified, who is keeping up with the new research, um, which comes out all the time. You know, even when we talk about something as simple as the fact that estrogen doesn't cause breast cancer, and we know that to be the case based on on research. And most women um, don't appreciate that. They don't know that because their doctors don't either. And it's not that the research isn't there. The research is there, but not everybody knows the research. I, you, you've hit on a great point, and that is that we have a huge education gap in this country, and and it's education gap of women, but also the medical providers that are caring for them. And this is well-documented. And part of the problem is we just don't teach menopause education anymore in any of our medical training programs. So when we looked at this in 2018, we published some data and internal medicine residencies, family medicine residencies, and even OBGYN residencies, they get a maximum of one to two hours, hours of menopause education, their entire training program. So when they graduate, they feel grossly uh, unequipped uh, to deal with Mm -hmm. menopause and they just don't feel like they have the skill set. And so this is hardly surprising when you look at the the amount of education they get, which is very little. So I think we need to do a better job. I think women need to demand better. But, you know, and when you look at the residency training programs, they just have so many other topics that they have to cover. So they've got, you know, all of new medicine has come out and everything is getting squeezed into a smaller and smaller amount of time. So I think you know, it's not necessarily the fault of the residency programs, but I think it's just that there's the amount of material to be learned is voluminous. Well, that's, I mean, do you have any exactly thoughts about it. this? No, it, absolutely. It's, <clears throat> it's the exact same thoughts. And here I am. You're at this incredible institution. You're at Mayo Clinic. I am at Northwestern University. We both have outstanding top tier residency programs, top tier medical schools. The residents do not spend one minute in our menopause clinic, not one minute. And it's not that they don't want to. When I bump into them in in the operating room or making rounds and they always say, boy, would I love to spend some time in your menopause clinic or in your sexual medicine clinic or in our, you know, vulvar clinic. But we can't because we don't have the time. time. There's too many other things that they are obligated to do. And that's the big disconnect. It's not that the education isn't there. It's that they don't have access to the education. So that's what we need to address. And that's a big obstacle. So when you think of a solution to that, you let me know and we can. I know we have to scratch our heads at this because, you know, this is this is bread and butter of what we do every day and taking care of midlife women. And it's such a, it's such a massive amount of material and knowledge that's required. And it's just not taught. And I always tell the residents, you know, you spend all this time doing obstetrics and women spend an average of two years of their life pregnant, and they spend an average of 30 years of their life in menopause. And where are the priorities here? So, so this is such a good point. So the women, the, the residents in our study, when we ask them, if they saw menopausal women, they said no, but these are internal medicine, family medicine residents and OBGYN who are seeing exclusively women. So they aren't even recognized. They're seeing at least 50% of their population is female and at least, at least 
80% is over the age of 50, right? right? So they're seeing women who are postmenopausal. They're just not seeing them. They're not as seeing post them. exactly menopausal women. So they, they said, no, I don't see menopause. They're well, just not but there's seeing. Because this concept, and we see the same concept in just in, not in physicians, but in women, that you're done with menopause. How often do we hear that? Oh, I'm not in menopause. I'm done with menopause. And of course, what they mean by that is that they're done having symptoms that they're aware of, such as hot flashes. But I tell people, you're not done with menopause until you die. And right. that kind of shocks people. <laughs> but right. the point is that the repercussions of not making estrogen on our brain, our bones, our bladder, every cell in our body. It's still there. It's still there. So, yeah, you and I could go on and on about this. I am going to put some links in the program notes so that people know how to find a menopause practitioner uh, using the North American Menopause Society website and, of course, um, other links and information about you and about where people can get some help with, with sleep. So thank you so much for this time and this wisdom and this really important topic because when I survey women and say, what do you want to hear about? sleep is always in the top three. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk with you. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker. And thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my inside information books available on amazon.com and follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. See the light, now I'm sleeping through.